The Ruando Podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life. Be sure to visit ruando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book, Infinite Play, and free access to my content library. Enjoy the show. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Uh, Today we are speaking on reality dominance as voted on by everyone in the Masculine Underground group. Um, If you're not in the Masculine Underground group, you should be. Type in forum.masculineunderground.com. The group's been growing a lot, and there's been some great discussions in the group. And um, I'm feeding off of some of the threads that people have posted. And uh, but this is a topic that I've wanted to speak about for a while because uh, it's something you know. If you ever have, if you have any experience with psychedelics, or you just like to philosophize about life, conceptualizing subjective reality is something that's very fun. It can also just be a trippy thing to think about. But in today's current era with what's going on politically in the United States and around the world, um, I think this is a particularly pertinent topic of dominant realities and perceptions of reality. Uh, Last week, a couple weeks ago, we spoke about sexual shame and how most shaming comes from this arbitrary set of norms and taboos. And if you don't fit in that, you feel shitty. That's kind of how the collective polices uh, individuals, but obviously it can hurt uh, individuals if they're shamed for something that's natural to them. That, that was the subject of the episode of two weeks ago. But uh, I did reference this idea that the norms and taboos of a given collective or a given system are largely arbitrary. Um, so we're going to talk about we're going to talk about reality uh, reality so that your reality isn't being dominated, so that you can put forth a hopefully positive, more positive reality. There's an application to leadership, obviously, and being able to unify a group around a set of perceptions. There's a lot of applications and in intimate relationships, and we're talking about sexualized realities. Um, if you're in a two-person, if you're in a couple, if you're dating a person uh, of the opposite sexual polarity, or perhaps, I mean, well, we'll get into that, but uh, certainly differences in reality perception between a feminine person and a masculine person happens all the time because we have different brains. Um, so. Uh, just understanding how realities work, not that you should dominate your partner's reality all the time. Well, it's actually, I'll dig into the meanings of all these things, but there's huge applications in relationships, uh, especially if you are the masculine person in a relationship. This is kind of a burden that falls on you often the time in terms of peacekeeping and also leading your family or the two-person reality that is your relationship. And the third, um, the third application of reality dominance and understanding all this is in uh, battling the dark arts, battling advertisers, political propaganda, or at least uh, uh, thinking critically and cleanly when it comes to a lot of these political um, back and forths. I mean, in the United States, the polarity between the left and the right is getting bigger and bigger. It's uh, kind of scary uh, for some of us uh, <laughs> trying to look, uh, be objective observers from the outside. Let's just turn on this light. I don't know if I need it, but... Um... Uh, here we go. Better, I guess. Uh, lots of applications of this. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'm not going to speak to you too, um, directly on this, but you know, with the Black Lives Matter stuff and the riots and the COVID, do you wear a mask or not wear a mask? From my perspective, you know, I'm American, but I'm currently in Asia. I've been in Asia mostly. And even when I was in America, I tried to avoid uh, getting too deep in left-right politics for, for various reasons. But one is that, um, you know, there, there are two sides to every reality. You know, I, given especially that I've been in a cult before, I try to avoid us versus them uh, paradigms because that's the opposite of um, a positive reality. Um, 
But anyway, we're going to get into those applications in leadership, in relationships, and in the dark arts, politics, propaganda, advertising. A couple quick announcements. Um, I'm doing a, an online revamp of my everything on the internet. Uh, I switched platforms a while ago. This new platform is as bad as the other one. None of this should matter to you except for this part, which is uh, I, given that I'm changing everything in the next couple weeks, if you've been interested in my archetype class, uh, 21 day archetype masculine, masculine undergrad, masculine under, geez, the 21 day masculine archetype challenge, and you know the price was prohibitive or anything. For the next like 10 days or so, I'm dropping the price to 50 bucks. There is a small catch. The small catch is that within these 21 days, I'm going to be switching platforms. You still get lifetime access to the the challenge if you if you sign up uh, at the half price discount now. Um, but at some point in your 21 days, you're going to have to get a new login. So because of the inconvenience, I'm dropping the price by 50 bucks. It's only $49 now. Uh, so limited time things. So if you go to ruando.com slash archetype dash 50 dash 50. So ruando.com slash archetype dash 50. Um, you can get the 21 day archetype challenge at half off. Again, uh, within these 21 days, you're going to have to switch platforms. So for the inconvenience, I'm dropping the price still comes with a free coaching session. Um, the second uh, a quick uh, uh, announcement is it's kind of a soft one. I've been looking for an apprentice. This is a personal thing. Um, looking for someone who uh, is kind of like myself many years ago, who wants to have adventures, wants to grow as a person, very eager, maybe doesn't have a lot of money to like pay for coaching or for courses or traveling around the world, but really has that burning desire and has some skills that um, can contribute. And someone like, yeah, I'm looking for someone like myself a few years ago who's hungry to learn, hungry to grow, has big dreams, um, and wants to travel around the world. This is something I've been, I've been wanting for a while, uh, someone who I can you know, teach in a very close one-to-one -one, uh, way. Um, and who wants to travel around the world, and there's certain things you would do uh, for me in, in return on a, on a business end. Um, so if that's something that's interesting to you, go to my website, uh, you know, apply on my coaching application, and just mention that you're interested in, in uh, being my apprentice, and we can speak more about that. I'm not going to, there's not, no big pitch for it. If you're interested, apply. If not, whatever. Okay. We're going to have a sip of coffee, and we're going to jump in. Uh, if you're watching live, uh, I don't know, I'm doing it a little bit earlier than normal, but um, anyone who, who hops on live, please do a ask your questions because I will be speaking about reality dominance from kind of an academic uh, level, but I want to make sure it's applicable to all of you, so feel free to drop in your questions in the comments. I'll keep your, you anonymous. Um, drop your questions in, uh, and I'll try to answer the applications because I'm not really sure where... Uh, What's most applicable to all of you? Is it in leadership? Is it in intimate relating? Is it in propaganda? We'll see. Okay, we speak about this on three levels. First is defining terms, defining what reality and subjective reality actually is, and then therefore what is to be dominant, to have a dominant reality. There's a lot to say on that. This is the academic part. It's extremely important to understand realities though, because if you just try to jump into this idea of dominance, you're likely to cause harm or even, even cause harm to yourself uh, but also just miss a certain points when it comes to subjective reality. The second, uh, the second part, we're speaking about the sexualized aspect of reality creation. There are, uh, there's the masculine logos and there's the feminine pathos, and both of those things contribute to the reality that we perceive, uh, we being a, a collective or a, a group. 
And the third bit is the practical application in emotional, re uh, emotional leadership and reality creation. What are the traits that you need to shift a collective reality and some of the tactics? All right. So jumping in, what is reality? What do I mean by reality? Reality are the, is the sum total of perceptions that an individual has. That's it, right? Um, some people get uh, angry when you challenge their reality, or some people actually get angry when you challenge this idea that there's an objective reality. Um, I wrote this post a, a couple of years ago, I think it was on Better Humans. Um, it was titled, um, How to Get People to Join Your Cult. It's kind of like a cheeky thing. I was applying like cult principles to marketing. And in the intro, I said something about subjective reality. I mentioned that term. And uh, a couple people got really angry that I, I just used the term subjective reality. It's like, there is no subjective reality. There's one true reality, and anyone who doesn't see this reality is, is incorrect. Well, uh, I would challenge them. Uh, then, like, how do you know? I mean, this is actually a Robert Anton Wilson uh, bit. Uh, there may or may not be a, a singular objective reality. He calls it deep reality. Timothy Leary calls it deep reality as well. Like a single uh, objective reality that um, can be proven with um, physical uh, measurement and all that stuff. There may be such a thing. But how do any of us know? How do any of us know what things are, right? Like we see, like I see this notebook uh, because there's light that bounces off of it with the colors and shapes and I, I can feel it and I can hear things. Like we all pick up things through our five senses. But we know, I mean, if you just take the sense of sight, you're not actually seeing, you're not actually seeing this pen on the screen, right? You are, uh, there's light uh, in this shape being reflected uh, into your eyeballs. Your eyeballs are absorbing it and is going and creating an image in, your, in the optical part of your brain that is trying to recreate the light waves, right? Um, now, most of us don't have to challenge this assumption when it comes to physical objects. Like, we can just trust there's a pen here. You don't have to go around and be like, is this actually a pen or is my brain tricking me? Like, you would go nuts thinking about that day in and day out. <clears throat> but if you remember a couple of years ago, there was this, like, there's this thing on the internet about, like, what color is the dress? And even with physical things, some people see the physical world and experience this physical world slightly differently than others. Um, and this is just talking about, like, we're all looking at a, a picture of the dress. If you don't remember... There's this picture of a, a dress, and it was something about the exact um, balance of colors in like the two colors of the dress that some people, depending on the rods and cones in your eyes, some people would um, uh, see it as blue and some people would see it as gold. It depended on the function, the physical structure of your eye depended on how you absorb the light and created an image. So even with physical things, we can't always agree. Um, and it's important to understand this because all when, we, when we, we talk about our subjective reality, our reality tunnel, it's made up of physical things that we take up through our five senses, the concrete. And we, we for the most part, don't question that. Like, no one is questioning whether there's, a, whether there's a pen here. Like, if we start, if I perceive of a person that I'm talking to and no one else perceives that person, like, I'm going to be like, oh, shit, I'm crazy. Like, no one uh, really questions the physical world. But when you consider that the perceptions of our reality or subjective reality are on a continuum from concrete physical objects that we can see and observe with our five senses, um, all the way to the abstract, which are things like value judgments and perception of what's normal. And I talked about this in the sexual shame episode, um, but like um, expectations, um, what's okay, what's not okay, right and wrong, good and evil. These are all things that are, are not physical. Like you can't touch good. You can't touch normal. You can't touch okay. Um, you can't touch judgments or, or any anything fit, uh, abstract. That's what defines it as abstract. You can see if you just look at any any argument, any political argument, those two things 
I mean, sorry, the, uh, the abstract world is so easy to perceive differently because there's nothing concrete to refer to. And we're talking about politics and uh, some of the fallacies and thinking and perception that people have. But just understand that first, that none of us, even if there is a deep reality, even if there is an objective reality, none of us can possibly know what it is because we can only observe anything through the subjective functions of our five senses in our, in our mind. I'm going to answer this question. Uh, if you're just joining, feel free to ask any questions on reality and dominance in the in the in the comments. Um, I'm speaking about this from a kind of academic perspective. We're going to speak about some relational things, but I want to make sure if you have a question on specifics. Um, someone asked, um, with the concept of dominance reality, does that imply that there is no such thing as true equality? Um, I hope you're still on, the, whoever asked that, I hope you're still on because uh, what do you mean by equality? Equality is another uh, abstract term. I'm going I'm to guess what I think you mean um, by quality, um, equality is that um, what is the uh, subjective perceptions of two people feeling like they have things is fair. I would argue that uh, when it comes to abstract things, there is, whether or not there is, again, whether or not there is something as true equality or true, uh, true reality or deep reality, how can any of us really know? Because um, with like with dollars in a bank account or the number of gold pieces or the, the square footage of your land, that is something we can objectively measure. That's on the concrete world. But it's like, um, but if you look at something more abstract, like are all the kids, are all the kids in a family getting equal attention? Or does everyone love the same amount? Or does everyone have the same um, upward mobility opportunities in society? Those that that becomes a little more subjective. I mean, you can imagine if you take two extreme characters like the angry old conservative racist white man. I'm not that I'm trying to create this polarity, but this is what, how people think usually, especially with the current racial discussions. Like that kind of old guy, and then you know a young, just the opposite, young person of color. Uh, they might have totally different perceptions of what, we, what equality is. And chances are maybe what actual equality, the closest thing to real equality is somewhere in the middle. So, uh, yeah, I know, I mean, getting kind of abstract uh, off the bat. But first, let's go into um, understanding that even with the concrete worlds, uh, what we perceive is a, a creation, a, a reformation of what we think we're picking up through our senses by our brain. If you've ever taken uh, something like, uh, if you ever taken a psychedelic, psilocybin, LSD, um, you'll notice that as you take a small amount, you start to trip. Your abstract perceptions start to shift. You might start to think, like I'll, I mean, every time I do drugs, I start to think, oh man, I need to be a lot nicer to my parents. When I, when I'm sober, I'm I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, I'm fine with my parents. Like I'm not bad to my my family or anything but when I when I start to take acid very often I'm like shit I need really need to call them more I, I need to be a little more receptive like my my abstract perception of what is okay or what is good shifts you start to take more uh, psychedelics uh, and you trip more and more now your perceptions of physical things might change you might be like whoa this pen is like wiggling around or like your face is orange or stuff like that or if you're tripping really hard you might not be able to pick up on the five senses at all this is all to, to say that our reality tunnels are malleable. Now, when it comes, as long as we're not on drugs, uh, as long as we're in waking normal states, um, we don't really, ha again, have to question concrete reality so much, but it's important to note that, as, like with the what color is the dress thing, even our perceptions of concrete reality can be uh, shifted. Um, so if you consider that even our, our five senses can be shifted, then of course our abstract perceptions of what's good and evil can very easily be shifted, and this is the point of propaganda. All right, so anyway, uh, 
when I, uh, this whole idea of reality, um, subjective reality, Timothy Leary uh, would call reality tunnels. So when I, when I say the term reality tunnel, that's what I'm talking about. It's like your tunnel of what you perceive. The idea is like no human being can perceive everything. If there is even an every, a clear everything, I mean, there's some, this is a philosophical question, but is there ever, is there any such thing as deep reality or does it constantly change as we perceive things? None of us can know, but we can see a certain tunnel of reality. We filter things in a certain way and observe, uh, observe it. Um, so the concrete stuff, we don't question that much, but the abstract stuff, uh, we, we do often, but the good thing about human beings, we're, we are social animals and our reality tunnels might each be different. Each one of us has a slightly different reality tunnel, but they all overlap. Um, if they didn't overlap at all, we'd all be in a completely uh, separate zone. We'd basically be in our own video game, not interacting with anyone else. That's like the plot of uh, certain sci-fi things. Like we're all in a computer simulation. We're the only person in it. It's also possible that that's the case, but for as, as much as all of us can perceive, we're in a simulation that are, there are many uh, players in the game. Although we, uh, we don't all see the same thing, but our reality tunnels overlap and we overlap through communication. Uh, it's a follow-up comment on the last question. Um, with equality, there's treating people the way you want to be treated, and there's then, but then with people in relationships, one people seems to have more influence. Okay, um, this is that kind of the point of today's episode. The whole I, I was going to get to this in the part three, but I'll answer this question. Uh, yes, in in all situations, um, the way I, I think of like reality perception is. Each of our consciousnesses are like, you can imagine them as having mass. So if you imagine all of our consciousnesses are like uh, planets in space, every planet uh, that comes close to another planet is going to exert gravity both ways. It doesn't matter how big or how small, every bit of mass create, uh, has a gravitational pull on everything else. If they get closer, the gravitational pull is, uh, is more. So if you think, you know, bring our analogy to people, the more intimate you get with someone, the more relational you get, the more rapport you build with someone, the more your gravitational fields or your perceptions of reality will influence each other. However, not all planets are the same size. And if you think of a giant planet and then a small meteor, they will both ex exert gravitational force on each other, but the planet will move very minimally and the meteor will probably uh, zoom into orbit around the planet. This is how people's influences on each other. Um, we all influence each other all the time. The closer we get to someone, the more we influence each other back and forth. But the, you know, quote unquote, stronger reality is going to influence the weaker realities more. I'm going to speak about the tactical side of this in part three of this uh, in, you know, maybe 20 minutes or so. Um, but that's the kind of the idea behind this whole reality dominance thing. And I'll, I'll jump ahead just to, to address this point. Um, you're doing, if you're a social human interacting with the world, you are affecting and being affected by other people's subjective perceptions. It's just how it goes. Unless you're like, you know, completely numb to the world and interact with no one. Like, I mean, all of us who socialize, we're affecting and are being affected by each other. It's not always the case that you have to constantly be affecting the world. Like, I don't want, you know, I think a lot of red pill guys get into this idea of like, I need to control every frame. Like, I need to control my frame with my wife. I need to control my frame with my kids. I need to control my frame with my boss. I controlling frame, controlling frame. You know, that's a very insecure way to look at life. I mean, it's great to be affected by other people too. Like, if someone has a better outlook on life and they have a better perspective, uh, yeah, you should, you should uh, let their reality affect yours because maybe it'll make your reality, it'll enhance your reality. Um, but the thing is, the reason why we're teaching all this stuff is that 
Uh, you don't want to be uh, affected by people and propaganda willy-nilly and unconsciously because a lot of times our perceptions of reality are negatively influenced by our environments. If you have, if you, you know, if you are around small-minded people or negative-thinking people or hateful people, that's seeping into reality. Even if you're trying to stay secure and solid and positive, like their reality is seeping into yours. The best thing you can do is have the stronger reality and maybe influence them more than influencing you. Um, same thing if you are in a leadership position, or I'd say if you're in the masculine end of a, a two-person relationship, or you're a parent, uh, you should be exerting, you should be influencing more than you're being influenced in those situations. And whether you call that equal or not, it doesn't matter, I think, you know, if you have a better way of looking at things, if you have a more love-based reality than another person's fear-based reality, yeah, you should dominate the reality. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, even in this, I mean, I'm not here to try to like dominate anyone, obviously, through a podcast, but I have some views that I think are more beneficial to someone who has a very hateful or negative or small-minded view. And if I meet someone who has a negative or hateful or small-minded view, yeah, I do want to dominate the reality with love. You know, if I can, if I can get someone to get out of their small-minded box or their negative box or their hateful box and see the world a little more positively and expansively and lovingly, yeah, I do want to crush and I do want to murder their reality. Their reality sucks and it's not beneficial. Anyway, those are just my thoughts. Obviously, all of these are just my thoughts. So I want to, I want to close up this first point. Reality tunnels overlap, um, and so, so one uh, illustration that Robert Anton Wilson shares in his book, Quantum Psychology, is that uh, all humans see the world differently, especially when it comes to the abstract stuff. You can see this in politics, like, should you wear a mask? Should you not wear a mask? Is there enough testing? There's not enough testing. Is rioting okay? Is not rioting okay? Should we defund the police or abolish the police or you know, not abolish the police? All of these, these questions that people have. Are, are, uh, everyone has you know, science backing it. Everyone has facts backing their argument, most people at least. But everyone is perceiving reality differently. Is it that one group is stupider than the other? I think it's a very fallacious view. And this is why I try to avoid picking sides in politics. It's like if you start to think that, oh, the other side is stupid, uh, you, know, you got to recognize that they're saying the same thing about you. Like you're, you're, you're both falling to the same level of, of zero sum. Uh, stupidity and you're not gonna there's no way you, there's never been a situation where two people yelled at each other saying hey your reality is stupid or your perceptions are stupid and they actually found an agreement or they actually moved towards a better future zero percent of that uh, this never happened in human history ever so if you're on one side of the political fence and you're constantly shitting on the other side you're only making the problem worse even if you have a better solution anyway I'm getting ahead of myself um, the two ways that we get our, over, our realities to overlap even more are emotion, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, and language. Language is a big thing because a lot of people get caught up in language um, and get confused by mixing up uh, the words we use, the maps we use for meaning, and the actual meaning. I mean, there's the, the, the phrase uh, in semantics, the map is not the territory. What does this mean is that the way we, we uh, perceive the world and communicate about the world, like we all, all of us who speak English can agree this is a notebook and this is a pen and this is a screen and this is my face. Like we all can agree on those words, but can we, those are concrete, but do we agree on things like authority or right and wrong or the connotations behind Black Lives Matter or, or uh, COVID tests? I don't know, pick your, pick your political thing, right? Uh, very few of us agree on the meanings behind these things. And just as a quick example, uh, you know, there's been a lot of great threads in the Masculine Underground group. Um, someone last week posted, 
what's your definition of masculinity, which is kind of a thing you see in men's forums all the time. Not a bad thing to discuss, but yeah, everyone commented their stuff and, you know, not that I disagreed with anyone's uh, comment or that their definition. A lot of guys was like penetrate and focus and like, you know, being a solid person or whatever. People said their definitions, their personal definition of masculinity. Mine is the characteristics that correlate with testosterone. Uh, why do I make? Why do I focus on a you know a scientific sounding uh, definition? Not because it's scientific, it's because it's concrete. It's like I'm bringing, I'm trying to bring this abstract term of masculinity back down to something physical that we can all agree on. No matter what your political ideology is, we can all agree that there is some correlation between certain behavioral traits and the male sex hormone testosterone. We could call that masculinity. Not everyone defines it that way. Someone commented right after me. Not a bad comment. I thought it was. He said oh, this might be an unpopular stance. But I think there's a, dif a difference between masculinity and manhood. And he goes into a whole thing of like basically somewhat negative connotations of masculinity and positive connotations of manhood. And the whole thing is these are just semantical disti distinctions. There's, uh, he was defining, uh, he was connoting manhood and masculinity differently than maybe uh, other people might. But the thing is that I tried to, you know, I just tried to point this out. It's not a bad comment he had. It was that. Uh, if you get caught up in semantics, this is the number one way that people create us versus them dichotomies. It happens in politics. People have started wars over these these semantical distinctions. Is Jesus the Son of God, or is uh, is Mary, uh, you know, whatever? Like uh, even within Christianity, there's been so many splits over semantical distinctions. And from the outside, it seems ridiculous. Like it's like uh, there's a Dr. Seuss book. I forget what it was called, but uh, it was like a war between these two sides about. People who buttered their bread on top and people who buttered their bread on the bottom. I mean, it's obviously a children's book making fun of the the, the ridiculousness of war. But a lot of our like violent, even the conflicts in America right now, some of the violent conflicts are over these semantical distinctions where people are mixing up a term with the actual meaning. And um, I don't mean to harp on this too much, but this is the number like number one source of fallacious thinking I think in people because language is the best way we have of transmitting meaning to each other, but the words we use are just signposts. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a tendency people have to uh, take a terminology and because they have a term for it, oh, well, that must be real. Um, like, you know, I, I, I don't post things to Facebook anymore for these reasons, specific, I just think it's ridiculous. But I remember I posted something controversial uh, about like, I think it was just, I was being neutral about cults. I was saying cults are neither good nor bad or something like that. Um, which is a semantical, uh, semantically um, vague statement that I made. But someone like attacked me on it, and then I said something back to them. I don't remember uh, trying to explain my side. And like, oh great! And he responded, oh great! You're using moral relativism. This is my trolling, uh, trolling gestures. Oh, you're great! You're using moral, moral relativism. And uh, uh, that was his comeback at me, right? Moral, moral relativism is a term. It's an ism. It's a term. Um, and and his way of of uh, attacking me back was just labeling the thing I was doing. He was accurate in what I was saying, but because there were negative connotations, that felt like a rebuttal. But that's that's like me saying, um, uh, like let's say you're eating a hamburger. This might be a weird analogy. It's just like you can label anything as anything. You can take the same, um, you can call someone a bleeding heart liberal or you can call them uh, a, a freedom fighter, right? Same, I, same connotation or denotation. The last example, I've made this example on the podcast before because I think it's so silly. Um, I was visiting a couple friend of mine from college. I was staying with them for the weekend. Uh, Saturday morning, they offered me breakfast. I'm like, oh, I, I don't eat breakfast. No, thanks. 
And the, the husband, who's my friend, he's like, ah, I mean, you don't eat breakfast. The breakfast is the most important meal of the day. How can you not eat breakfast? Blah, blah, blah. He goes on this whole rant about how I'm crazy for not eating breakfast. And the wife, who's also my friend, was like, oh, yeah, that's that thing you do. It's, uh, it's intermittent fasting, right? And then the husband was like, oh, yeah, intermittent fasting. That's the thing, right? Same exact thing in, in actual practice of concrete actions and things. Same exact thing. But because there was a, a term for it, now it seemed more real. It seemed more normal and okay that I was doing it rather than just not eating breakfast and not having a term for it. It's a silly thing, right? But so many people get caught up in this. I'm going to end our first point here. But um, it's important to understand that the map is not the territory. Uh, oh, and then uh, so one thing with political uh, ideas is this idea of Overton, Overton's window. It's the range of topics that are okay to talk about in a given culture. Um, this is something that, it, just like we were talking about in the sexual shame episode, is kind of an arbitrary thing. If you look at different points in history, the Overton window is very different. Like um, in uh, Inca societies many hundreds of years ago, talking about human sacrifice was totally okay. Uh, in 2020, in the Western world, or in most of the world, if you talk about human sacrifice, like the idea of even bringing up human sacrifice as an idea is a ridiculous thing. It's so far outside of Overton window. Um, I, was, I was reading, I try not to read Facebook posts, but two of my good friends, a liberal guy and a conservative guy, have been arguing online, so I decided to check out what they're arguing about. And someone uh, posted, you know, someone commented something like, uh, something, it was something about the defunding the police. I don't remember what his point was, but he was like, I don't think this is a radical idea to say blah, blah, blah. Um, and just the idea of saying, I don't think this is a radical thing, that, that's not really saying anything. What it is, what he was trying to say is like, hey, this idea that I have, it is within Overton's window. Is it within the range of normal? That doesn't mean anything though, right? It's just completely perception. Um, so it's important to recognize the malleability of our perceptions, especially when it comes to abstract perception. So going back to what does it mean to... What does reality dominance actually means? It means that your subjective reality, your reality tunnel is influencing the other person or the other groups a little more than they're influencing yours. I just want to say this is not that you have to do this. It's not that you know it's better always to have the dominant reality. I mean, if you are in the presence of a wise person, maybe you should have a more receptive reality. But it's important to recognize how realities get dominated and your ability to dominate reality, because there might be situations you might be on a team, you might be in your family, you might be in your relationship. I think I think masculine people in a sexually polarized relationship, so most straight men, it's kind of your responsibility, especially when you're with a woman who is having her emotions and needs to be held and needs a secure person. That's kind of your responsibility to maintain the more solid reality so that she can come back to you. Uh, you know, a lot of nice guys, if they're in a relationship with a woman and she's having her emotions, maybe it's hormonal or whatever, she's having her emotions, and then they, he also has his emotions, well, now you're both fucked because he's not holding down his, his role. Um, which brings us to our second point. I just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Oh, okay, all right. So the reason why realities overlap and why we can affect each other is that um, the way that, given that our perceptions are so malleable, even to ourselves, the way that we get confirmation of our reality is by having other people agree with our perceptions. It's like if I see this notebook and all of you guys don't see this notebook, I'm going to feel crazy, right? If I perceive the, the United States government as fascist and no one else I know uh, perceives it as fascist or vice versa, I think it's not fascist and everyone thinks it's fascist, I'm going to feel crazy. It's the, one of the scariest human experiences is being alone in your reality. 
people talk about isolation being bad for you. I would argue it's not just the physical isolation, why solitary confinement is so uh, terrifying, is that when you're by yourself with no one else to confirm your reality, even with little things of physical reality or perceptions, it's like such a terrifying experience because we humans are supposed to be in packs and perceive things together. But this is also one way we get manipulated. Um, in Cialdini's book on principles, uh, there is the, I forget what the principle's called, but the experiment that illustrates this is, um, uh, not, wait, what's the term? I forget, but like the experiment is you'd have a bunch of people just like go to a, a busy street corner and everyone starts looking up and then all these random people will come along and also look up. No one knows what they're looking at, right? Like the first people were just like their shills, their experimenters just pretending to look up at something. Everyone starts to look up and then some people will be like, oh yeah, I see something. Like they're trying because there's a confirmed reality of like seven people all looking up at something. Everyone who comes by assumes immediately that there must be something to look at and they find something to, to match the reality. This is a, a, a human tendency and it gets exploited by advertisers, by propagandists, by a lot of people. So just be aware of that. Um, but at the same time, there's nothing, there's no benefit in being alone in your reality. In fact, I would argue one of the reasons why um, people who are in extreme positions of power need experiences where they're receptive. Like the one of the tropic examples would be like, the high power CEO needs to hire a, a female dominatrix to whip him in submission just to balance out his energy is that we don't all, I mean, it's a lot of stress to always be the person setting the reality. Sometimes we need to, you know, let other people lead us. It's good to understand how it works. Okay. Point two, um, try to move a little bit faster. The sexualized side of reality creation. So there are two main categories uh, to our perceptions of reality. There's logos, we can call that the masculine side, is the logical perceptions, it's, the, it's our neocortical uh, ability to perceive time and space and map things and label things, this is our semantic circuit as well. It's how we usually communicate and think that we're perceiving reality based on our, our, based on our facts. Um, but what the other component, which, which has just as much weight in how we perceive reality, sometimes even more weight, is pathos, which is our emotions. Um, our feminine side, our emotional perceptions of things, our connotations versus denotations. And it's important to make this distinction because even though most of us think we perceive reality and come to our, you know, our political opinions or our relational opinions, our, our opinion of like who's right in an argument with our loved one or whatever, a lot of us, all of us assume we're coming at it logically, but almost always what actually trumps is pathos. Pathos trumps logos almost all the time. And even when you look at um, like liberal conservative debates, like Ben Shapiro, uh, he coined this term, uh, facts don't care about your feelings, uh, which is kind of like this uh, conservative, uh, you know, war cry these days. Um, you know, because like a lot of times they, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not picking a side here, but a lot of times uh, liberal media uh, and the liberal sense of normal um, has, I think, overvalued pathos in a way that when you see someone like Ben Shapiro uh, arguing with like a liberal college student, the, the liberal college student is not bringing facts to the table, so it's very easy for the conservative guy to make him look stupid. It's not that the liberal arguments are wrong, it's that they were not backed by logos, they were all backed by, this is what should be, because, and then that is a, a you know, an error of thinking that people get into when they're always in their own echo chamber where they're only only talking to people who have exactly their same abstract perceptions so anything outside of it seems evil 
And so that this person, let's just use the liberal conservative example, this liberal person goes outside of their um, safe collective reality tunnel and tries to argue with someone who's purely using logic or heavily using logic, and they always look stupid. Like this is one of the things that made um, Jordan Peterson famous is that he ended up on these liberal shows where the interviewer didn't do their research. It's not that they had bad points, is that they, they thought like, oh, well, this conservative Jordan Peterson guy, he must be so stupid because all conservatives were stupid. And then because Jordan Peterson was a little bit better prepared or maybe a lot better prepared, he was able to make the interviewer look stupid. And then it ends up being a conservative propaganda of like all these liberal fails or forget what they call them. Um, because someone, uh, a lot of people, even conservative, even the whole the idea of facts don't care about your feelings, it's still like a um, a pathic or like, you know, a lot of times people use uh, logic to justify their emotional argument. And you see another example would be in the paleo vegan uh, arguments that people make. Um, everyone when it comes to diet, they have science on their side. Everyone references scientific things and this is what happens in your body. But really everyone's just using it to justify their emotions. Important to recognize this because this is how salesmanship works. If you've ever had a sales job, you probably were taught that it's great to make an argument for why people should buy your product, but if they don't like you first, they're not going to buy. It almost doesn't matter. If they like you, it doesn't even matter sometimes if your argument makes sense, um, but for anyone to purchase something from you, they have to like you first. They have to recognize that you guys are on the same emotional reality where essentially you're both um, thinking positively of each other. In common speak, we call this rapport. Rapport is the, you know, it was, a, it was a pickup term for a long time, just like seeking rapport, building rapport with someone. Rapport is when you get to the same emotional reality as someone of like, hey, we're perceiving, we're, we're feeling the same way about things. We're feeling the same way about each other, and that creates trust. We may or may not perceive the logical reality the same way. Like, I might think you should buy this, uh, this used car, and you think, oh, this used car is not really worth the money. But if we like each other, we can more easily get to common ground and create communication. This is important because if you are in a relationship, if you are arguing with someone politically, I hope you don't do that. It's a silly thing to do. But, um, or anything. Uh, it's important to establish that feeling-based um, commonality first for communication to happen. Uh, my favorite example um, when it comes to uh, get, dominating reality, this is my favorite example of reality dominance right here, is a guy named Daryl Davis. If he just had a book come out. He was on Joe Rogan a few months ago. Daryl Davis is a, a black musician black American musician who uh, conver has converted hundreds of KKK members to stop being racist. Beautiful thing. He's got some great stories. Uh, I'm trying to get him on the podcast, actually. He has a book out. Um, but he has all of these examples where he didn't try to fight a KKK member. He didn't try to make them look stupid. He didn't try to dominate them in, in the sense of like, you know, crushing their belief systems or, or, or virtue signaling at them. He just tried to understand them. He developed rapport, because like uh, his story, uh, from what I remember, is uh, he grew up outside of the United States uh, in, in the places where they didn't really have racism. So when he came back to the United States as a, a young man, he was confused at racism. It didn't, like, racism didn't make sense. It's like, why are, why are all these white people hating me for being black? So he just wanted to understand what their deal was. So he had these one-on-one -on -one chats with all these high-ranking KKK members to just try to understand their reality and a lot of the guys, a lot of the KKK members, when they start to, uh, you know, build rapport with this black man, they're like, shit, I kind of like this black guy. Damn, I'm not racist anymore. And a lot of them gave up their robes, not not because they were argued with, not because they were, were fought. It's because someone sought emotional common ground with them. 
this guy, Daryl Davis, he just tried to understand why are these people racist? And they kind of dropped the racism on their own. Um, this is the way, I mean, I'm getting, this is really part three, but this is the number one tactic uh, to dominate in reality is to establish common emotional ground first before you try to introduce anything. If you try to convince someone why they're wrong, they'll almost always uh, d drive their heels in the ground. No one likes to be overtly dominated. Uh, but I just want to finish this point on the masculine versus feminine. I didn't really get into it. The masculine element of reality creation comes from decisiveness. So like making clear decisions. You can see this in the, in the, in the common example of like, what do we eat for dinner? Like the woman wants the man to decide. Um, why? Because the, like, it's impossible for decisiveness is a, is a, is a testosterone driven characteristic. Um, someone can't be in the receptive oxytocin feminine state and be making decisions at the same time. I want to be clear, I'm not saying that women can't make decisions or anything like that. It's just that any person can't be in their oxytocin, serotonin-driven uh, feminine state and be decisive at the same time. They're two different uh, operating systems, right? Um, it's like, you know, it's, it's not that one is better than the other. It's more like uh, if, you're, if you're trying to determine a color, using your ears is not going to work. You can't hear a color, right? Uh, using your oxytocin feminine system uh, in order to make a decision, it's just a, you're using the wrong apparatus. So in a typical, um, in a typical male-female dynamic, very often that testosterone or masculine-driven idea uh, is, is a more male trait. Um, uh, on the other end, the feminine trait or the, the pathos part of reality creation, the counterpart to decisiveness is surrender. In a healthy masculine-feminine relationship or a masculine-feminine system, it doesn't have to be two people. It can be, you know, the leader and the team. It can be uh, the, the parent and the child. It could be the man and the woman. It could be, you know, it could be two partners in something, but one deals with the production side and one deals with the creative side. Um, these are still masculine-feminine dichotomies. Um, the masculine side is the decision-maker. That's their gift they're giving to the unit, and the feminine side is going with it. In a healthy man-woman relationship, the, the guy makes great decisions, and the woman really trusts him. And then everyone decides on dinner in a very healthy way. Um, same thing in any, any um, situation. So it's important to, to recognize if you're in a group reality, if you're in a pluralistic reality, meaning a situation where reality tunnels are overlapping, where we're all perceiving the same thing to some degree, um, it's important to note in a given situation, and it could flip-flop at different times, in a given situation, are you more of the masculine person who uh, should be making decisions for the group? Or are you the feminine person who's feeding the, the emotions and the trust? Because for a pluralistic reality to um, work, you kind of have to operate as a super organism for that situation, whether you're deciding what to eat for dinner or trying to... Uh, do some business operation or try to go into battle together. It's important to know your roles because if you want to work together as a synergistic body, you kind of have to you have to sync realities for a period of time. Um, more things on the masculine feminine. Masculine trait would be stability. Feminine trait would be flow. Uh, you can see this in in man woman relation or masculine feminine intimate relationships all the time. When the woman is in her flow state and she's giving into her, her emotions, uh, I mentioned this earlier. The worst thing a man can do is also go into his emotions. If he's also going into his emotions and he's like, you know, going and flowing, if they're both flowing, then, then who's going to stabilize them back to reality, right? It's a beautiful experience for a person, man or woman or child, to experience their emotions at times, but it's even more beautiful and safe when they're in the presence of someone who can hold space for them or be stable and just like be there, right? Um, 
I mean, this happens, you know, in typically in a male female dynamic, uh, the man is the one being more stable. Men tend to be less emotional. Um, and I hear this all the time from female friends or in relationship workshops, like women get upset when they're in their emotions and the guy also gets their emotions. It's like, I need you to be stable for a second so that I have like a, a place to land. Right. Um, because if both people are in their feminine flow state, emotional state, then reality is no longer clear. It's like, I mean, people make fun of, uh, you know, comedians make fun of women or like relationship comedians. Like, you know, they're always changing their mind when they're in their emotions. They want this and they want that and they want to go this and they want trying to do these things that maybe are impossible in time and space. It's important. It's uh, easier for a woman to go into that state and feel safe and feel um, flowing and creative and inspired when they have someone to sink back up into. Otherwise, reality becomes a little bit too amorphous and you can't feel safe. You end up being in a reality that doesn't match up with. Uh, the closest thing we have to deep reality. Uh, thanks for the love in the comments. Uh, 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 so yeah, and a lot of women complain and a lot of women these days because so many men are disconnected from their masculinity and like masculinity has been shamed so hard by, you know, in, by recent years, uh, by culture in recent years. A lot of guys, especially my age and younger, go into these relationships uh, desexualized or like effeminate and uh, they're with a woman and the woman doesn't feel safe in going to her feminine because the guy is not handling the stability side. So she needs to go into her masculine to make sure that they actually get to where they're going. And then she ends up being in a masculine role and she ends up not wanting to sleep with him because for most uh, typical women, they can only really feel sexual in the receptive state in the same way I think most straight cis dudes, uh, I mean, typical dudes, um, feel a lot more embodied and themselves and their masculine. Uh, and I, you know, this is based on biology to a degree. If you have a lot more androgen receptors or testosterone receptors in your nervous system, you probably feel more yourself when you're doing testosterone-driven activities. Our right, last dichotomy in uh, the male-female reality creation, uh, the male side, the masculine side, I should say, is action. The uh, feminine side is resonance. Both of these are important in reality creation. If you're in a relationship or a team, obviously someone needs to be pushing the doing forward, but you hear this a lot in... Uh, uh, man-woman arguments. Um, guy wants to just push forward and take the next action. You know, this is a this is something I you know, something that I do. That I'm trying to you know uh, balance out. Like I eat too fast. I do everything I want to do, 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 do. Get to the next place on the desk on the road trip. Whereas uh, the feminine side is making sure things still feel good. So like action and then resonance. Um, so uh, to close up this part of it, I want to say uh, I got a question from uh, one of my clients, a uh, longtime client. He's in this great relationship. Yeah, their sexual polarity is usually good, but um, she happens to be very political. Uh, you know, she works in politics in the country they're in. He's, for the most part, has you know not really cared about it so much. But with the given state of the world, he's becoming more interested in politics. And he messaged me uh, kind of this like kind of worry or concern that because his girlfriend is so knowledgeable when it comes to politics and has her her opinions very very firmly rooted. He's kind of uh, going along with her ideas of things and her opinions of things. And he's like, is this bad? Is like, are we going to lose polarity? And I just want to say, first of all, not really. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to promote this idea that you need to be the dominant reality all the time. Like, this is what a lot of like insecure like guys in the red pill community, not saying that all red pill guys are insecure. There's a lot of benefit, beneficial ideas in the red pill world. But a lot of red pill guys get so hyper-focused and controlling frame uh, they're like, oh, they have to be the dominant reality all the time, blah, 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 controlling frame, controlling frame, that they miss out on like some of the beauty of reception. Like it's okay if, if you're in an intimate relationship with a woman or a person or anything, 
it's okay that they influence you too. In fact, if you're, there's an equal balance of you putting energy and effort in, she should influence you at times. You know, I, I love learning things from a woman I'm intimate with. But here's the difference. If you want to maintain the sexual polarity, it's important that you don't make your decisions completely based on the other person's ideas. So in this, in this example, if the guy who wants to maintain the masculine polarity, if every time she gives an opinion, he's like, okay, I believe that too, eventually the polarity is going to shift because that decision-making is like a more testosterone-driven trait. As opposed to, he listens to her what she has to say, he listens to others some things, he, he does his own research, and then he comes to his own conclusion, then he'll maintain reality. This distinction might seem like, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, nitpicky, but this is like one of the differences between um, maintaining your polarity and agreeing with someone as opposed to just going along with someone else's reality. Because I think, you know, this is like the scourge of many sexualized relationships when the man stops holding down his decisiveness, stability, and action, um, she ends, like someone has to take care of it, right? The reason why sexual polarity exists is that there are testosterone-driven traits and there are um, oxytocin-driven traits, and both of those traits are important for a person to experience. In a sexualized relationship, it's most effective if, if the masculine person and the feminine person, um, uh, what's it called, uh, specialize, um, but if someone's not handling the masculine side, the feminine person is going to end up having to do that, in which case sexual polarity is gone and it ends up affecting often people's sex lives. Um, okay. And in my, my other example, I had the CEO and dominatrix thing. The other example would be, uh, I know a lot of drag queens. Um, drag queens, typically gay man who likes to dress up as a woman or feels inherently, you know, they're his feminine archetype or, you know, whatever pronoun he uses, but... The, the feminine archetype is very strong in drag queens. Sometimes the feminine archetype is stronger in drag queens than uh, uh, straight women. Um, but every drag queen I've ever met who, who's in a relationship, you know, in a relationship with another man, uh, they're always with a, 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 a particularly masculine gay man. In a sexual polarity, no matter what gender orientation is, this polarity tends to exist in sexual relationships. Why? Because on a very deep, inherent, primal level, we want to experience both the testosterone-driven traits and the oxytocin-driven traits. They're, both, they're important for our livelihood. They're important for our perception of reality. I know a few uh, people who are bisexual, and when they're dating a masculine person, they become more feminine. When they're dating a feminine person, they become more masculine. Why? Because these are like the sum total is important for uh, reality perception, also navigating life. Um, so it's not to say that one is better than the other. However, I would say decisiveness, stability, and action are the testosterone-driven traits. If you're the man in a relationship, quote, quote or not quote, uh, it's a responsibility. If you're the feminine person, surrendering and having trust in your partner, going with the flow and recognizing emotional resonance is kind of is more of your responsibility. Okay, bringing up to our final part, um, which is the tactical side of emotional leadership. <clears throat> So someone asked the great question uh, up top <clears throat> about um, dominating someone's reality, who has a stronger reality. Uh, the, dom the word dominance is kind of a charged word, but I used it because it's charged, but also uh, I don't have a negative view of uh, the word dominance. Uh, if you bring it back down to the concrete terminology, uh, dominance is neither good nor bad, and I think it's um, a fallacious idea to think that all dominance is bad or all power is evil. I think these are very negative um, 
connotations that are being thrown into the collective consciousness because they lead to more us versus them dichotomies and more separation. Like, I'm not trying to get everyone in the same political party, but the world, the, every country, the entire world will be a lot more in harmony if we can get our reality tunnels to overlap more, which doesn't mean that, you know, uh, one way to do this is like the fascist idea of like, we're going to conquer the world and everyone's going to think like us. That's never worked. No one likes that. People will always fight you back. Even if you have the best reality tunnel of all, like let's say you have the best worldview, you have the ideal religion, the ideal way of looking at life. If you try to conquer the world and push a reality, someone just because you're pushing a reality will try to fight you back. And then, you know, that's what Hitler tried to do is what a lot of people tried to do, right? A much more effective way is to understand the other, so what Daryl Davis did to convert the KKK members, understand the other person's reality, establish emotional uh, consensus, and then the logical realities will naturally emerge, right? You don't have to convince someone of their logical reality if you uh, create um, stable ground and uh, consensus, emotional consensus. That being said, to influence someone's, like if they have a, a hateful, like, I hate all people of your race, or I hate all people of your political party, doesn't matter who you are, I just hate you, you do need to have the more dominant emotional system in order to overcome that, because on an emotional level, you do need to do battle in quotes, right? So, um, so what leads to, uh, what allows for uh, limbic dominance is the term that my cult used, or emotional dominance, or the having the more dominant reality. On the emotional level, it's security. Uh, <clears throat> an example would be if uh, you get all worked, if you get all worked up every time you get trolled on the internet, or um, if you get like this angry, visceral reaction when someone disagrees with you, uh, on an opinion, or uh, you know, you get like uh, angry when someone disagrees with you. That's a sign that you don't have a very stable uh, emotional reality. Um, people have fought wars over disagreements. People have uh, over disagreements in words and terminology and things that don't even exist. People have uh, threatened to kill each other over semantical distinctions. Why? Because anyone who is driven to anger, violence, hate over a disagreement in, in reality perception clearly it doesn't feel stable in it. It's like, a uh, silly example is like if um, if someone calls you a name that really upsets you, if they, I mean, I, I'm trying to think what's something that was said in an adult, something like, oh, you're a moral relative, oh, you're a fascist. This is being thrown around a lot, right? If, if someone calls you a fascist and you get upset about being called a fascist, then chances are that you're kind of in doubt of whether or not you're a fascist, right? Like if someone calls me a fascist, I'm like, well, I'm not. It's like if a four-year-old calls me a poopy head, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm a poopy head, but what does that even mean to be a poopy head, right? <laughs> you know, like, like most of us wouldn't get upset if a four-year-old calls us a poopy head. Why? Because we don't fear a four-year-old. Hopefully you're, hopefully you're secure enough emotionally that you don't fear a four-year-old. Um, hopefully the words poopy head doesn't mean a lot to you. Uh, so there's no doubt, like you are so secure that you're not a poopy head or whatever that means is not affecting reality that you're like, you just probably would laugh, right? You know, if you're in doubt of your political views, if you think that maybe you are, you know, you, you're kind of in, you don't, you're afraid of people calling you a fascist and you get really upset when someone calls you a fascist, as an example, chances are your emotional reality is not very secure. Um, if you get upset when people troll you or make fun of you or disagree with you and you get angry at them, uh, you want to punch them in the face for having a different worldview, your emotional reality is not very secure. And on a, on a personal level, obviously it's, you know, it's better to be secure so you don't get all worked up about things. But also, if you wanna, if you wanna assert your reality on a system, uh, 
you need to be me secure. There's no way that like, Daryl Davis, the guy who um, converted all the KKK members, all those KKK members, he was so effective, not because he outsmarted them, it's because his emotional reality was so solid. He was so um, unwavering in his uh, belief that like racism is kind of a silly thing, but let me try to understand where this person's coming from. Like whether they called him names, whether they attacked him, whether they physically threatened him, he was just so solid and so secure that the, eventually the, the, this hateful, angry KKK member his reality ended up shifting towards Daryl Davis's, not because of logic, but because of the emotional security. So I've spoken about emotional security in many other episodes, so I'm not going to dig into it, but it comes down to the buzzword of self-love or like having your own back or being so sure that no matter what the opposition is, no matter what these alternate perceptions are in reality, I'm sure that love is better than hate or whatever your belief is. Or I'm so sure that this is a pen. You can call it an asparagus if you want, but I'm so sure this is a pen that I'm not going to be upset with you if you call it asparagus. I'm just going to think it's silly, right? Silly example, but it's not that different in a lot of the, the ridiculous political arguments people have. They're basically arguing of whether this is a pen or asparagus and it's, it's nonsense. Okay. Um, I do want to address the ethical thing because going back to the Hitler example, Hitler maybe believed that his views on reality and what should be what should be done with the population of the earth was truly good. You know, I have to say good in quotes. Um, everyone, I mean, very few people consider themselves to be the bad guy. So if you are dominating people's reality, how do you know that yours is the right one? I, I did I did go back and, and one one point because like a lot of people have uh, a very charged connotation when they think of the word dominance. Um, I think it's a sign of the times. I think it's a reaction to patriarchal norms over many thousands of years. Um, and then equally patriarchal reactions to the idea of dominance, thinking like, oh, anytime someone dominates another person is a bad thing. Well, I'll first say up top, most people want to be dominated most of the time. Not in the sense that they want their will to be overpowered, but very few people want to um, take full responsibility for reality, which is why we seek leaders, which is why we seek parents when we're young, which is why even in a, in an intimate two-person relationship, we rely on the other person, right? If we're going to do everything all the time for ourselves, then why be in a relationship? Why relate to any other people? And some people have this view all the time. It's a very consumerist idea that uh, if you have enough money, you can just buy all your needs. You'll no longer rely on anyone. But we, we know that this is not, this is not how humans have been wired it doesn't lead to uh, happiness and fulfillment for most people. This isolation, even if you can buy all your needs to be met, you kind of need more than that. Um, this has been shown in various movies. It's a Fight Club to a degree. Uh, Fight Club kind of showed uh, the craziness that a, a person can go into when they dig deeply into the consumerist reality. Anyway, I'm going to go into that part in a second. But back to like, how do you know? You never really know. Uh, and I think it's very healthy and important to maintain a level of uncertainty when you are pushing your idea into the world. Uh, especially, I mean, whether it's with yourself or with, um, with people you're in charge with. Of, um, anytime someone uh, digs into like full 100% certainty, they're exposing themselves to a lot of risk. Because as we spoke about in the first you know, 20 minutes of the beginning of this episode, um, uh, 
we can never fully trust our perceptions. At the same time, you can't go through life always wondering, oh, is this is what I what I perceive to be true? Obviously, if you are constantly questioning everything, you can't move forward. But you have to you have to decide on your level of um, uncertainty tolerance. And I would say I was thinking about this because um, I tried different diets and I'm very health conscious. And like I was thinking, like I do certain things. Like I, I'm uh, I very strongly believe in fasting. That's part of my reality. I think fasting is a healthy thing. It feels good to me. I believe in the science, but as we spoke about in the last section, uh, you can find facts and evidence for almost almost anything. Um, you can see this in the nutrition world, how people um, often, uh, I mean, you see the paleo-vegan argument all the time, and uh, both sides have great facts and evidence. Look at any left-right political discussion. Both sides often have uh, facts and evidence. Um, but I was thinking like there's things that I would do for myself with my nutrition that if I have children, I probably wouldn't push it on them because my level of my level of certainty is not 100 percent. I wouldn't want to risk an alternate uh, lifestyle on a child because I wouldn't want to mess them up. I'm willing to take that risk of myself. Anyway, uh, one way to look at the ethical side of dominance is is the is your reality creating a system, a game where uh, the results are zero sum or if it, or is it a positive game. In other words, win-win. Um, I spoke about Finite Infinite Games uh, a while ago. Um, I might do another episode on that because I think it, it went a little awry, but uh, to the best that you can see is your reality improving life. So like for instance, um, a lot of people have fear-based realities. A lot of what I do as a coach is and uh, simply holding to the reality. Like When someone comes to me and says, I want this in my life or I want to be more confident or I want this experience or I want to feel this way, and they have this underlying belief that they can't have it, or they're afraid, or it's impossible, it's too difficult. Part of what I do as a coach, and what I think most good coaches do, is simply maintain the reality where they have what they want, where they are what they want, where they're doing what they want, and um, maintaining it in, in a way where the other person can gently shift into that reality where they can see it happening. And then the thing happens on their own. Essentially, that is a domination of reality. Uh, if you're seeking someone for um, advice, for knowledge, you kind of want your reality to be dominated. These are kind, it's kind of, it can be a gift that you give people. But uh, as, we, as we have this negative connotation of domination, most of the time we're th uh, people think of, of non-consensual dominance, of where um, someone is, so one person's will is being overpowered by another uh, for that more powerful person's selfish benefit, rule of might is what it's been called throughout history. Um, whereas, uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to say this from an, an, a moral standpoint of like, oh, that's a bad, you should not do that because it's bad. I mean, you could, you could, I'm not saying that that's not the case, but I feel like moral arguments are, so, are often so abstract that they don't really ha carry weight uh, in the moment. At, at the most, you're shaming yourself. The, the, the more, um, the more operational reason, or you could even call it the karmic reason, I, I feel to not, uh, push, you know, not bully other people to just be in charge and, and have, like, make power plays for the sake of it is that it always comes back to bite you. Like if you, um, if you think of leadership or dominance, whether it's in a, in a loose social setting or in a, in a hard, like I'm the leader of this team, um, if that person is the head of the body, and this is, this is how I frame it in the archetype class when we do the, the lessons on dominance, the person who's making decisions and who, the person who's like the quote unquote masculine end of the super organism, whether it's a couple or a group, um, they, they're in charge, they're the head. They, they're, they have the logical perception, they're in charge of logos, 
um, and they're the head of the body. If you imagine an organism where the head is doing things that are not beneficial to the body, eventually the body's going to rebel. Um, we can even look at this uh, kind of metaphorically when like, uh, you do things that are specifically bad for your body. You take drugs or you do something that's like entertaining to up here. Eventually your body rebels, right? It shuts down, it goes against you. If you think of a superorganism this way, if you're the leader of a group and you're pushing a reality that only serves you and doesn't serve the body, even if you can manipulate and, and power play and coerce them and, and uh, brainwash them, eventually they're going to rebel. Their conscience, their, their wisdom is going to come back and bite you. So that's the reason. I mean, that's, that's the reason not to, not to be a dick. Um, however, if you are the head of a body if for a given situation, uh, it is your role uh, to or it is most beneficial to you, it's the most selfishly beneficial to you if you can lead the entire organism to greener pastures, then everybody wins. And that's, that's uh, you know, in the Star Wars universe, this is kind of how they show good and evil um, and how the Sith Lords, they seek immediate power, but it's never sustainable, whereas the Jedi uh, take the slow burn uh, route and then they end up, um, well, they end up losing Anakin Skywalker, but that's the whole thing. All right, so I want to just go into like my tips for this stuff. I'm going to end on a little thing uh, regarding political debating because no matter uh, if you're at all following politics in the world, you probably have some opinions and maybe you want to dominate some realities. So let's go that. All right, so the uh, I'm not sure if this if uh, the last if we cut out before I said this, but the two traits required for you having the stronger limbic system and being able to influence other people's realities more than influence yours are emotional security and clear thinking. And those are the two elements that we spoke about in, in part two um, of the, you know, the second section, like the logos and the pathos. Uh, clear thinking uh, is you, you being able to map reality and put things into words. Like very often, the, one of the reasons why we equate oratory or public speaking articulation with leadership is that that is the, the, the logical element of leading a group. Like, um, spoke about this, uh, which episode was this? The Prometheus Rising episode, I think, referencing uh, Noah Harari's Sapiens. I was speaking about the whole reason why uh, we uh, have mythologies is that this is the way that large groups of humans are able to organize. Um, if, we, if left just to our social brains, we can only um, organize in groups of up to 150 people. That's like our max limit of like real social relationships. But if we have a mythology, a uh, uh, an idea that um, connects us, uh, we can connect with thousands, millions of people based on an ideology. So like things like um, your nationality, your political party, your diet, your religion, these are all mythologies, they're ideas, they don't exist in the real world, but they're real enough to our mind because we, enough people have decided to um, uh, agree that they exist. We all agree that, almost all of us agree that certain lines on the map denote the United States of America. We all agree that certain symbols denote Christianity or whatever. Um, okay, so anyway, yeah, those are the two traits. But I'm going to go into uh, tips. Uh, one of the best, you, know, you could call it a dominance tactic, um, which I also think leads to like true wisdom, is expanding to fit the other reality. So I, I believe this is a Buckminster Fuller quote, um, and I, I'm not, I might not be getting it word for word, but it's something like... Um, one system never overtakes another system, but one system can expand to make the first system obsolete. I'm getting the words wrong, but the basically the idea is 
if you are uh, met with an opposing reality, and you see this in the Facebook arguments a lot with like at least what's going on in the United States, lots of divide, we're letting the Russians win, just kidding, I mean kind of, not really, but um, people are calling each other names and uh, they're denying each other's reality. Um, for what, when, when someone's reality is denied, it's one of the most terrifying things. We spoke about this in part one. Being alone in your reality or someone suggesting that your perceptions of reality are wrong are among the most terrifying experiences on an existential level to a human being. Which is why if you challenge someone's dietary beliefs or religious beliefs or political beliefs, anything that they really are immersed in, they tend to get angry. People will go to war and kill you just over this idea, right? So when someone on the left and someone on the right are both denying each other's reality, one's saying, this such and such is clearly racist. And this other person's like, well, no, no, that's not racist because blah, blah, blah. And they're both yelling at each other, opposing realities. The natural reaction is to get upset and the natural human impulse is to smother the other reality. If, if, two th if, if you're in a zero-sum game where only one reality can win, you can't, it feels very, it feels very uncomfortable to have the opposing viewpoint uh, exist because uh, if it's your perception of how things are in life, um, it can be very terrifying. Um, so the, the dominance tactic, and the reason why, I mean, I call out haters on the internet all the time or I mean, in theory, right? I don't, I don't post to Facebook much at all because it's actually posted one post uh, yesterday because I just wanted to nudge people in the direction of actually this exact tactic, which is instead of invalidating someone's reality, expand to include their reality. I shared this in my, in my article on how to get people to join your cult. If you ever try to push against someone's reality, whatever the perception is, whether you're trying to sell them something or trying to convince someone to be intimate with you, or I mean, you shouldn't be doing that, but if you're trying to influence someone in some way and they're, and they're saying no and you're trying to tell them, yes, 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 they're only going to dig in harder. Um, no one with an ego will change their mind. It just doesn't happen. However, if someone validates our reality and gives, them, gives us, us an alternate explanation, as long as we can feel that our reality isn't wrong, a lot of us can expand our, expand our minds. No one changes their minds. Many people expand their minds. So one example, I, hope, I don't know if it's controversial or not, but Islam did this with, with uh, Jesus Christ, right? Islam didn't say, oh, Jesus is a nobody, didn't exist. When Islam was formed, it identified, oh, Jesus Christ, uh, well, he's not exactly the son of God. He is a prophet, though, right? I, I mean, I don't know exactly the, the details. I'm not that familiar with these religions, but I, I, this is basically what happened. Um, uh, Trump did this in his election. I forget the example I put in that article, but he did something with like, uh, with disenfranchised people, he validated their reality and gave them a bigger explanation that they can hang on to. So the person didn't have to be like, oh, what I thought was wrong, which would have made them angry. It was like, oh, what I thought was right, but there's actually something else that includes this. So, I mean, I, I do this in relationship arguments all the time. Uh, and, and this is like, this is going back to the Daryl Davis thing about how he convinced the KKK members to stop being racist. He didn't do it by telling them not to be racist. He didn't do it by name-calling or defriending them or ostracizing or dehumanizing them. Um, he did it by just trying to understand. And once they were on equal playing ground where he was like, okay, I see that's how you believe, a lot of times they just, they just shifted over. Um, similar related point is that, uh, and this is going to be hard for everyone, especially when you're angry at their side because you think that they're uh, invalidating your reality, um, seek consensus before trying to win. And Acha, one thing on the last point, uh, both of these things related, is that 
if you really if you really employ this tactic, right? Even if you do it from purely selfish reasons, like I just want to win arguments on the internet. A silly a silly motive, but let's say that's your thing. I just want to win arguments on the internet. And you really get into the practice of expanding your worldview to include both the other and whatever I believe, right? Because like the zero sum game is like down here. Uh, only one of us can exist. But if you expand your reality to 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 see like, oh, well, both of these ideas can exist if this is true, like you add a third layer that encompasses both, and you get into the practice of doing this, even if it's just to win, you'll start thinking that way, right? Uh, something Robert Anton Wilson writes in his books is whatever the thinker thinks, the prover proves. I started doing this just as a way to handle trolls. And then as I started doing this, where I expanded my reality to include other people's, I was like, you know what? They're not that wrong, <laughs> right? Like, I don't have to be angry at them or... or or um, experience hatred in their direction, if I actually can take on this reality where both exist, well, I can accept them the way they are. And almost all the time, one of the reasons why this works against trolls is that it gives the troll nothing to push against anymore. And then you guys can just be friends. Again, this is what Daryl Davis did, um, in, in, in a sense. Um, and, it, and I think it does bring you to a level of true wisdom where you no longer are viewing the world as a dog-eat-dog -dog world and instead seeing people as equals. I mean, one of the things with like, I see this, I mean, most of my friends are left-leaning, so I'm not, as, I'm sure this exists on the right as well, but I see this with a lot of my like hyper-liberal friends, or, or just liberal friends, where um, they, they preach things like peace and love, and they, they'll say, some of the spiritual ones will say, oh, yeah, we all are one, but this person doesn't believe we all are one for fuck him, let's kill him, he's a fascist, racist, blah, 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 whatever, and they're so quick to ostracize someone who doesn't fit in the what they're saying as lip service that we all are one and that we're all connected if you actually can take this worldview and I'm, t I'm not saying this from a spiritualist perspective go ahead and do this to win arguments if you can actually expand your reality to uh, um include the others they'll almost always follow you right because people people want to be dominated or rather people want to follow someone because it has them feel safe i don't know if i spoke about this in the last part but i, I, I do talk about this when it, when it comes to like leadership and we talk about this in the archetype class most people don't want to be in charge of every element of their reality, right? Um, the way I put it, when, when I think I was, I was speaking about this in one of the cult episodes. Um, most people want to be on a cruise ship where they can do things. They don't want to be in charge of driving the ship, which is why we, we hop onto group realities that make us feel safe. It's a whole thing that I spoke about in the last bit where the experiment where like a bunch of people are looking up and then people walking by start looking up on the sidewalk and they're pretty sure they see something. We have this mechanism because part of how we get confirmation of what's real or not is other people. And if you're with a group of people or a, a single person who's super, who's super um, sure of himself, we want to follow that because it makes us feel safe. No, we don't want our entire reality to be dominated, but most of the time we, we want to know that we're aligned with a group of people or some mechanism or some dogma sometimes that will lead us to safety and happiness. It's a deep primal thing. It doesn't always make sense rationally, but it's like deep within us and it's one of our emotional needs. Like that's why people in isolation often feel crazy um, because we, we are social and in order for us to feel on earth, we kind of need to be connected to other people. So uh, bringing this to the tactical side, if you want to ha incept someone or uh, bring someone into, the re into your reality or dominate their fear-based or hate-based reality, hopefully that's what you're trying to do, um, don't take away people's free will, but give them options. And I think, you know, this is something that works with kids really well. 
Um, I think it works in relationship arguments when things are heated. Don't tell someone what to do. There, I mean, there are times where you have to do that, but most of the time, the more effective thing is to give someone options where both options are something that leads to something that is in your reality. Like, um, this is, uh, this is a silly example, but if you're fighting over like, um, restaurants and I'm blanking on an example, maybe I'll, maybe I'll come up with something in a second. Um, but very often, like if I know I want to bring like a relationship discussion or argument in a certain direction or uh, a team conflict in a certain direction, I'll lay out a few options, all of which are kind of what I think is right. But I'm giving them free range within that because people don't really want 100% free will, but they want the freedom to choose something. Um, Okay, let's see. Oh, so the, uh, one, of the, one of the tricks here, one of the, or I should say one of the challenges for most people, and I think this is a point of growth for an individual, um, which is why, you know, for, for men, I think it's so critical to be able to be dominant, not to say that you should be, you know, in charge of everything all the time, that is insecurity, but um, in order to actually do this, you really need to drop your, uh, your uh, immature need to win right? To win at other people's expenses. Like, um, it's great to be competitive. There are times to be competitive, but when you're on a team, when you're trying to connect with people and live in the same reality, for you to want to be seen as right is never going to work. It's always going to bite you in the ass unless you're around particularly weak-minded people. If you're around people that have any sort of personal value, um, you can't always try to, you, I mean, you can't play zero-sum games, basically. It's just not effective. I'm not saying that out of, from a moral perspective. Okay, um, sorry if I'm speaking fast. It's early in the morning. I kind of just want to get this through because I wanted to add this on to last episode. Um, oh, so determining your range of certainty. I spoke about that uh, and future mapping. So this is where the clear thinking comes in. If you're in an argument, uh, one of the most important things is to clarify terms between people. As we spoke about in, in the first third of this episode, um, uh, when it comes to abstractions, terminology can be twisted so deeply. And you see this again in, in the political discussions that people are having. I'm going I'm to end with a point on this when it comes to E and E prime, which is, uh, yeah, well, I'll get into that. And then, uh, I, the, and then the last like emotional thing I'll say um, goes to is the emotional security piece is that you need to hold on to the reality that we are all, are all okay. We're kind of bleeding into my personal viewpoints, but I do think it's true. Like if you're in a relationship argument, if you're in a team argument, if you're in a family argument, uh, the best deep perception is that everything is okay. We are all okay. No one's evil. No one's wrong. Some people might be thinking incorrectly. Because if you ever, uh, people often rise to the, your emotional expectations of them. And if you think of very little of someone, um, you're almost always going to prove it, in which case... Uh, as we've been speaking about, you need to create that emotional common ground before you can have an intellectual common ground. And very often, if you have that emotional common ground, the intellectual side takes care of itself. Okay, um, before I speak about uh, language, uh, oh, and another point is um, don't go on a bad trip with someone. Uh, I got into a kind of an argument with a lover recently where she was kind of having an emotional breakdown and 
she was one she was getting extra upset that I wasn't also having an emotional breakdown I guess because she in the past she's dated guys where like when she started to cry they would get so insecure and ungrounded by it that they would start to cry too and they would try to fix everything and maybe that's just what she is used to I don't personally think that's a good thing to do in fact I think if you're the masculine end of a relationship and your partner is breaking down or your teammate is breaking down uh, you need to remain stable and um the way I put this is don't go on a bad trip with someone. If someone's like on a psychedelic and they're having a bad trip, the worst thing for you to do is to just jump on that trip and try to be there. The best thing for you to do is to empathize and sympathize best as you can, but remind, maintain the reality that everything is okay. If everyone thinks everything's awry, then the system is going to go into a negative spiral. All right, a couple things before I end on my... Uh, mini rant that relates to the political discussions going on right now. This is a bit of a contradiction to what I said up at the beginning of the episode where there is no deep reality. There are things that are a little more real than others, I believe. I know that I'm, I'm making the kind of an animal, animal farm twist right here, but I do think there are certain things that are pretty close to fundamental truths of human behavior. Obviously, you know, here I am talking about them. And, but they're very simple, right? Uh, the, the fundamental truths of human experience are not complex things that take forever to figure out. They're things that you, you often see as the morals of children's shows. There are the importance of gratitude, compassion, and courage. Pretty much all universal self-improvement advice comes down to these three things. This is the reality that I choose to dominate people with if I have to. Um, and uh, what's someone call it? Sorry. Yeah. And um, a lot of what we consider the hero's journey when it comes to um, fiction and then also living our lives is a hero discovering a deeper truth. And the, deeper tr the deepest truths are almost, I mean, if you read any screenwriting book or book on storytelling, it comes down to like something along those three things. A lot of, most of the time, the, the, the moral of a certain story is the power was in you the whole time. You didn't need the other person or uh, you needed to be happy with what you had or... Um, you were able to do that or everybody is okay. Like these are the basic morals of every, you know, fictional story. And um, I do think that they are more true than the lies that many people uh, have, which is that person is evil. There's no, um, there's no saving them. Um, yeah. Reality dominance comes from seeing the bigger game. Uh, I spoke about rising above conflict and taking the higher reality plane um, yeah, I think that's it. Okay, my last bit uh, in regards to what's going on politically right now, um, and perhaps politically uh, of all time, but I think it's uh, at a particularly high uh, divide right now, large divide, is um, many people are quick to label another person and therefore create an us versus them mentality. When you have that reality, there is zero chance of uh, your reality winning. You're dropping it to the zero-sum game. And a very simple um, semantic thing or verbal thing uh, that has people drop into the zero-sum reality, which creates hate between people and divide. And like you know, free, if, if you don't care about hate and love and stuff, and you just care about like Machiavellian power, you can put it in terms of if you're in the zero-sum world, there's no way for you to win without killing the other person. And I assume that even if you want to win arguments or uh, assert your viewpoints in the world, you don't actually want to go around killing people. Uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, and the th and th that thing is the verb to be. In the English language, the verb to be, and uh, I'll just speak for English because that's the language that I speak, the verb to be is meant f basically for two things. And I want to give a shout out to my boy Patrick who turned me on to Owen Barfield who speaks about metaphor and this understanding that every word in every language, but English especially, has some sort of root in physical objects and things you can do with physical objects. So if you are just looking at the world from this kind of like primitive viewpoint of there's just physical things and there's just things I can do with physical things, like we're not talking about any abstract ideas, you don't need the verb to be. The verb to be in all its conjugations, you are, I am, he is, that is, um, they are, uh, they have two functions in, in English at least. One is states of being. States of being are always temporary. Like, uh, he is funny. Well, that's only true in certain contexts. There are probably time. I mean, if you think of any person, if you say, uh, I am this, I am that, uh, it's never a universal experience. That tree is far away. Uh, is only true from this perspective in this moment of time. You can say, oh, um, Mitch Hedberg is funny, but then you see, I mean, rest in peace, but you see Mitch Hedberg give a bad joke. Well, that joke wasn't funny. It's like that, that statement, he is funny, is not an absolute statement. The other time that people use the verb to be is when uh, you're talking about metaphors. Metaphors can be absolute. You can say, um, Muhammad Ali is the goat. Uh, you can say that, and it could be an absolute statement, but it's not. But it's a subjective statement, right? It's not actually grounded in real reality. These two functions of the verb to be often get crisscrossed, and like, uh, so I gave this like little post on. It's my one Facebook post that I've posted in a year, and I might have I might have over explained this, but I speak. I was calling people out on saying, "Oh, you're a uh, you're a racist, you're a fascist, you're a communist, you're you're a whatever." Um, when you label people as you, you are this or he is that, um, you are putting them in a box where you're now mixing up metaphor and states of being. You are now making an absolute state of being, which is never the case, right? There's nothing that is absolutely like a thing with a certain trait forever. And the reason why this matters is that if you mix up metaphor and states of being, you are... Uh, I mean, I'm using it right now. You are what, what you are functionally doing is mixing. Sorry, I'm getting all these messages now. Um, I have to turn off this somehow. Uh, if you mix up metaphors and states of being, you are putting the other person in a box where you're now dropping to a zero-sum reality, and you're not actually saying anything. So I posted this uh, little post about not using the verb to be in your arguments, and I, I was I was teasing. I, I've been. I don't look at my Facebook feed ever. I actually have it blocked, but I happened to look when I was checking this group, and I, and I saw a bunch of posts all of a sudden of like people threatening to defriend each other or whatever, which is I think is a silly idea because who's really friends on Facebook anyway? Um, but this idea of defriending someone over this idea, I was like, just like I, I made this argument about this is this is a, a silly thing to do, it's a meaningless thing to do, and uh, someone said, um, someone commented, a friend of mine was like, uh, yeah, defriending someone over their opposing political view is silly. However, unless they unless they are racist or they are a homophobe, right? I don't think he I don't think he realized that he was doing exactly that because what does I mean? Just as an example, what does it actually mean to be a racist in in operational terms? What does it actually mean to be a terrorist in operational terms? It doesn't mean anything. You actually have to define the word racist or terrorist in a in a clear thing. So that we could define a terrorist as someone who active who 
does damage to property that belongs to the public or harms people in the name of an ideology. That's something that is objective. And we can be like, oh, that is okay. If, if, if uh, Joe Schmo bombs a building and a couple people die or whatever, we can be like, oh, that fits the definition of terrorist. But to just say he is a terrorist and it's like, well, is he a terrorist? How, how do we define him as terrorist? And he hasn't done that thing. Well, now we're up to now it's like you have to redefine the word terrorist in non-operational language. It means it's always going to be up, up to interpretation. This is I mean, I don't want to get into the specifics of this, but like a lot of what's going on in America's political divide right now, the word racist is being thrown around a lot. You are racist. That idea is racist. You know, and like I don't I don't know anybody who actually wants to see one race suffer uh, or like have less than another. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I mean, there are there are people who actually want to actively harm people of color or some other race that exists, of course. But a lot of the discussion between people is not that it's uh, someone having an idea that is maybe less tolerant of someone's racial ish viewpoint than others or a lot of things is around the police right now. Um, is wanting a police force racist? Is our police inherently racist? Well, these statements where you say this is that doesn't actually mean anything unless you ground it in like actual action verbs and things, right? Once you ground it in action verbs and things, then uh, then you can uh, either agree or deny an actual thing because it has true physical evidence, right? If a police officer uh, steps on a person's neck because they're black and then he in the same exact situation does is is super kind to a, an equally you know an equal uh, perpetrator a perceived perpetrator who's white and you can compare those two things like well that i mean we can say if that's the definition of racist of actively causing harm or doing things out of hatred to a certain race well that's that's now operational language and we can define that objectively but when you're saying your idea about the police is racist you're talking about something that's so vague that of course it's going to be denied, right? No one's going to call themselves that. Um, and when you have these two vagaries, when you're both when you're both yelling at each other with abstractions, uh, you're a racist. No, I'm not. You're you're speaking in ways that you can't prove or disprove anything, and all you're doing is dropping to the zero sum reality where nothing ever can uh, nothing ever can be resolved unless you kill the other person. Which is why historically people have gone into wars and killed each other over these like semantical distinctions. Because if you're not going to find a, a, any sort of common ground, if you're going to yell vagaries at each other, it's very easy to do this in religion, right? Because in religion you're talking about things that don't exist physically. You're talking about concepts, right? When you're just talking about abstractions, when you're overusing the verb to be, when you're mixing up metaphor and states of being, there is no opportunity for you to have a singular reality. So. There's a peace and love element, but I'll just speak on a very like selfish primal level. If you want to win your arguments, if you want to dominate realities, hopefully your reality is one that promotes peace and love more than hatred. But, you know, whatever. I'm not here to lecture you on ethics. Um, if you want to just win, you got to stop speaking on the on the abstraction on, in the abstractions of you are. You have to stop labeling things. You have to stop putting things in boxes and drop things down into clear operational language. And if you really want to do good, um, uh, expand your reality to accept all, all things. Okay. Anyway, uh, that's it. That's all I got. Um, top of the episode, I had the announcement that the I'm doing a revamp of my websites. So uh, until then, and it might be a couple weeks actually, it seems like. Um, my archetype class is 50% off. 
You can go to ruando.com slash archetype dash five zero dash 50, the number ruando.com slash archetype dash 50. The archetype challenge is half off until I get my new website up, which should be at least 10 days, maybe more. So that's available. You still get the coaching call. It's kind of uh, the catch is uh, that at some point during your challenge, you'll have to switch platforms. It shouldn't be that big a deal, but uh, since it's, you know, an inconvenience for you, I'm giving a discount now. So that's it. All right. Spread peace and love. Dominate the world with your love-based reality. Please. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.